The interviews and discussions in this podcast are opinions only and not financial or investment advice. Listeners should obtain independent advice based on their own circumstances before making any financial decisions. This episode of the Stock Insiders podcast with me, Oriel Morrison, is sponsored by Barclay Pierce Capital, a leading Australian corporate advisory and equities trading firm. Focused on your vision, Barclay Pierce specialises in making it a successful reality. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stock Insiders podcast with me, Oriel Morrison. Now, today we're diving into the fintech space with a close look at the ASX-listed instalment payment platform, Sezzle. Sezzle's got a market cap, as we speak, of around about $715 million. It's ASX code, if you want to look it up, SZL. Now, I'm lucky enough to be joined by Charlie Uakim, the CEO of Sezzle. Charlie, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you so much for joining us, coming to us all the way from Puerto Rico. Thanks for having me. Very cool that you get to be there. What's it like down there at the moment? Oh, it's warm and sunny and uh, a lot different than Minneapolis right now. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Now, Charlie, let's just dive straight into it. You're clearly an entrepreneur looking at your career history. Sezzle is not your first business. What is it that drives you? What is it that drives you to start businesses? You know, it really all stemmed from my first job out of school. I I, I was a software developer at a a company in the parking industry. And I, you know, quite frankly, I really didn't feel challenged at that job. I was getting high fives, you know, and things were going well in my career there. But I was always tinkering, trying to think about what to do next. And I, I think that like low level of challenge really started to hit me. And you know, you realize you spend a lot of your life and your career and you want to make sure that you're doing the most with it, with your life. And that's what I think really changed my mindset. So I went to business school after that job and at business school, I loved every minute of it. I basically connected my tech side of my mind, which is what, what I went to undergrad for with my, the business side of my mind. And post business school, I started my first company and I just realized I love the challenge of it. I really do love the challenge of it. And my, what I, the, um, the analogy I give is it's like mountain climbing. And, uh, you know, why do people climb mountains? It's because of the exhilaration of getting to the top and succeeding. And that's what b- building businesses is all about for me. It's the challenge. And that's, that's exhilarating. And that's an awesome way to look at it. I, I guess the, the, the thing is that for, for many listeners out there, some of which would be entre- entrepreneurs themselves, you don't always make it to the top. There's a lot of challenges and difficulties and you need to take a lot of risk, especially if you've got a family yourself, um, to do this sort of career. And you have actually learned some things the hard way. Oh, absolutely. It's not been an easy ride. You know, when we first started our, when I started my last company with my cousin, we always kind of looked at it and you you hear the stats, like 90% of businesses fail. And we're like, oh, that's not us. We're too cocky. You know, that's not us. I mean, we, we definitely almost failed a few times with that first company. And then that really starts to humble you and you realize how hard it is. And that challenge is real. And, you know, I, I understand why a lot of companies fail in that process. And, and you got, you got essentially, and correct me if I'm wrong, Charlie, kicked out as founder of your last business, Passport Parking. Yeah, that's true. That's part of the challenges. You know, we, we barely made it past, you know, early days. We had to pivot. Uh, we got our first contracts with big clients like Chicago, and that started to change the trajectory for us. And then even then, you know, there's no safety. I, I got pushed out and I had to figure out what to do next. What, what did you learn from that? Do you think? I mean, you know, that, that you put into your career now today, because for some, you know, that kind of thing would 
cause them to fall over and actually not get back up in terms of going back into another business? I mean, for me, I, it, I don't know, you know, I'm trying to think about what I learned. <laughs> I mean, I'm too hard headed. <laughs> I learned, I, I did, this is what I did learn. I, I learned that I wanted to do it again. That's for sure. The moment, the day it happened, I still remember it was December 4th that I was told um, about six years ago. So it was almost six year anniversary a little bit ago. And when I got back and talked to my now wife about what I wanted to do next, I said, I wanted to start another company. I was certain of it. It was a no, no brainer for me. I knew that I loved doing that. And that was the day I started thinking about and working towards Sazzle. So, so you were talking about the fact that when you went to business school, that sort of married up with your tech experience, your studying of, of technology that you had earlier on in your life. Can entrepreneur, entre, being an entrepreneur, entrepreneurial skills, can they be learned, do you think? Or are, they, are you, do you feel like you were born with this drive? I think they absolutely have to be learned. You know, I think you, I think you definitely do need drive. I think you need drive. I think you need the, I think you need to sort of have the attitude that I cannot fail. It almost feels like when you're in one of these companies, at least for me, that you're treading water and you, you have to survive. You know, you, you have to keep on figuring out the path to survival. And then once you figure out survival, it starts to get, I think, easier. But I, I learned everything. I think everything important about building a company on the job. I, I, I think, you know, some people talk about getting mentors, et cetera. But I think I really think you learned it on the job. Actually, I was just talking to one of our board members and you just talk about the same concept that it's hard to learn a lot of the things until you feel some of the pain. Yeah. And you and you certainly, as we've been talking about, um, haven't had the easiest path to, su- to success. What's brought about your people, planet and profits approach, approach to business that you've talked about? Well, I think that was part of the first company. So at the first company, I think culture was something that we weren't as strong at. And I really wanted to correct that at Sezzle. And I'm not going to take all the credit for that. Actually, there's a lot of people at Sezzle that I think pushed me the right way, including one of my co-founders, Paul Paradis. And, you know, pushing pushing that right way towards, you know, setting a mission behind the company and what we do. I did learn the stakeholder approach to business at, at business school, and I loved it. And the stakeholder approach, you know, for those that haven't heard it, is basically identify your key stakeholders and create wins for them. And if you do that, you'll have a company that will stand the test of time because you won't be caught blindsided by a stakeholder that you should have cared about. A great example of that, I think, that is obvious to a lot of people are like energy energy companies and not realizing that community is a key stakeholder for them. And I think now a lot of them do because they're pushing into wind and solar. But if you think about all your key stakeholders and push towards that, I think you've got the right mindset. And then we started to have people come into the company, young, brilliant minds, and they were telling us, hey, there's something uh, called B Corp out there that we should look into. And before that, we took a step towards being a public benefits corp. And that was basically, it, it all started with mission and then stakeholder approach. And then we had really smart minds come into the company and tell us about, more about the right path to take. And we just embraced it. How did you come up with the name, Sizzle? Well, part of it is it's really hard to find a domain. I, you know, I, yeah, I don't people really ever, you know, <laughs> Oh my gosh. Like when you start a new company, it's like, Oh, everything's squatted on. And yeah. so you just brainstorm names. I knew I wanted to be in payments. I knew we wanted to be in retail because the original business concept was in retail payments. And so the, I think one morning I woke up and I was like, sell and sizzle, sizzle, you know, just like that concept. And then I looked it up and it was available. Plus I love that it was short, you know, it's two syllables, six characters, super short, easy to remember, great recall. And then the domain, it was for sale for $2,500. 
and I made a I made an offer for fifteen, and they took it. <laughs> and that was the genesis. And then one of the best uh, investments you clearly made. Yeah. <laughs> Easy to remember. So, so talk to us a little bit about the business and and how it works and how you've had to pivot over the over the um, the last few years. Yeah. So sure. When we first started the company, so the mind the the data point that we started around is still the same, which is that young people in the United States they were paying with debit in a, in higher volumes than ever before. But back in 2015, there was two trains of thought around it. One was it's a preference, so it's a rising preference. The other is it's a lack of access to credit. So I, I think we started down, first of all, I think both are partially correct, but I think we started down the wrong path thinking that it was more preference. So we started down the idea that young consumers wanted to pay with debit. At that time, there was a product in the United States that was on a rapid rise called Venmo. It's a P2P platform, person-to-person -person payments platform, now owned by Venmo, or sorry, owned by PayPal. And so what we wanted to do is basically bring that concept into, into retail checkout. And so we raised a couple million dollars. We launched the product the next year and we could not get adoption. We, we couldn't get consumers to want to do it, want to utilize it enough. And what we were pitching to merchants was cost savings. So we're, we were pitching cost savings to merchants and then get rewards for paying with your bank to consumers. And that was like the first, you know, quote unquote, I, I'd call failure when in this, in the steps of the company. And then we realized we had to pivot and that was three, three months of pain pivoting because we had $2 million in the company. Uh, and those are key stakeholders and you want to take their opinions and not everyone was on board. Not everyone on our team was on board with pivoting. Um, and it just took a little bit of time to get everyone on board. And actually not everyone got on board. We just eventually pulled the plug and said we had to switch. And that that pivot was a critical moment for us because that pivot led to what we are today. You, you mentioned just then that you raised a couple of million dollars and, um, you know, it sounds so easy when you say it like that. But, you know, I know from my own personal experience, raising money is hard. H how did you go through that process? Absolutely. It's extremely difficult. Even then, I, so I'd already had a, uh, one success under my belt, but it was a little bit tainted because I was pushed out. So when we were in the fundraising process, I tell people about my prior company, but I always, I really love to be upfront with people about things because I want, if, you know, if you're going to find out something negative, I want you to find it out for me. And so when we were, when we were fundraising, I would say, here's what we're building. You know, here's my background. And, oh, and by the way, I was pushed out of that company because I, if you hear it, I want you to hear it from me. And I think that, you know, led to some people getting turned off. You never know. But, um, but I think the fact that I had a prior company did help quite a bit. What also helped is in Minnesota at the time there was a tax incentive and there still is it's on and on again, off again, tax incentive that helps. And we would, at the end of, you know, our conversations, we would mention the tax incentive, like, Hey, there's a tax incentive to investing. And that usually tipped dominoes over for us, which did help. So there was real help with that incentive. And it still took a lot of time. I mean, it took, you know, fundraising for people that, that you, you've done a bit of it, you know, it's a lot like watching penguins jump into the water. If you ever like watch a video, <laughs> they all like kind of like huddle up right near the ice edge yeah. and no one wants to go. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but then if you get, if you get the first one first to go, one, yeah, they all fall. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Then you can start to get more. Yeah. And that's basically what it was. We started to get the first one in. And then, and then people started to dive in and that's how we were able to raise that. Oh, now I've just got pictures of penguins in my mind. Thanks so much for that, Charles. <laughs> <laughs> um, now your business 
Sezzle is going incredibly well. Um, you've just hit record sales, Black Friday, Cyber Monday. Of course, you know, in your world, you would expect to do well then, but your underlying merchant sales hit a record $2.5 billion over the month. I mean, this is incredible, incredible numbers. How are you feeling about that? And can you keep it up? Oh, we're feeling great. You know, I, I, our, our view is that we're just at the forefront of our industry. So we expect to keep it up. Um, we expect that installment payments will continue to rise in, in North America and elsewhere. We've planted some seeds elsewhere. And then we also believe that, you know, I, I, me as a, a founder, I, I'm a big believer in growth. And you always have to be aggressively growing and trying to expand, but, but doing it in ways that are still reasonable and safe. And I think it, there's tons of growth within our sector, but that's not stopping us for, from thinking about what's next with our stakeholders. So the consumers is what we're thinking about most, you know, first and foremost. And with the consumers, our mission is to financially empower the next generation. And so our product, our core product does it, our, our interest-free installment product. But these typically young consumers are using our product and learning about how to pay with installments, pay with credit. We're walking, we want to walk them along the path deeper and deeper into financial services because they trust us, they love us. And our view is that we can keep on offering more products. So I think there's expansion with our core product, but there's also expansion with new products that we can launch to this space. So what can we expect to see? What type of new products are we talking about? Because I mean, this could be absolutely anything in, in the fintech space right now. Yeah, I think, you know, when I talk to investors about where we're headed as a company, I always say you can always also see it with our competitors. And I think a lot of us are, I, I really have a high degree of respect for the competitors in this space. And I think we're like-minded and you can see some of the, the companies launching products that are probably similar to what, what we're looking at. You know, Afterpay launched Afterpay Money in Australia. Uh, a firm launched Debit Plus in the United States. You know, I think those are a couple of banking products that are interesting for these, this consumer base. But really anything towards banking and financial products. And I always say like, you know, look at our space. You've got a bunch of winners. These companies are all going to be winners. I can tell because we compete against them every day. The, the groups that are going to be the losers are going to be traditional financial institutions that are relying on brick and mortar and are laggards in, in adoption of technology and innovation because the world has changed. Consumers don't go down to the corner to go step into their bank to figure out what, what kind of products to get. They do it digitally. And that's where we are. And we're also adapting the type of products that are available. And I think that's that's going to bring the, the new consumer towards, towards us and away from more traditional banks. Is there still a bit of an awareness gap when it comes to BNPL options? It's starting to become pretty well known in North America. You know, I think it's still, it's still, it's still, it's still early adopter at this stage with the consumers that we're working with. But I think it's going to start to spill over. You know, it, it, it's actually, this is where competition's great. You know, usually people think, oh, I don't, want to, I don't want to invest in an area where there's lots of competition. Actually, there's so much competition. In some ways that helps, or in many ways that helps, because it can change consumer behavior. Consumers start to see it everywhere. And they start, I think they start to wonder, why, why am I not doing this? It sounds like everyone's doing it. And I think that starts to shift the behavior 
And then con consumers that may not have wanted to try it will try it out and they're like, oh, this is great. I can actually see why people like to do this. So you just talked about North America and it being sort of fairly well known in North America. You're listed in Australia. You started in the US, of course, as we've discussed, and some of your staff is based out of Asia. What, what do you consider your company? I mean, you why, why listing first up in Australia? Because I know obviously you're considering a US listing now as well. Yeah, so we listed in Australia because the investor in Australia was ahead of the curve. When we were fundraising, we were competing against companies that were larger than us at the time. You know, Afterpay had just entered the United States and they were like, I think, a two or three billion dollar company. Klarna was present. They were a four billion dollar company at the time. A firm was present, also a couple billion dollar company. And we were just IPOing or thinking about IPOing at a hundred million market cap. And I was in the United States with my co-founder, Paul Paris. We were talking to a bunch of investors here. A lot of them were not understanding our business model. You know, they, they'd never seen it before because we were brand new. And whenever that occurs in, in um, you know, like a funding cycle, it's a, it's a big learning curve because these funders, they, they're, when they're making their investment bet in the venture capital world, they know that they're in for the next six years, probably. And so they really want to understand it well. And if you have to understand it well, it takes time. It takes a lot of time for you to understand like what the dynamics are. So we're going through these fundraising cycles in the United States, taking a lot of time. And I had actually spoken with uh, an analyst in Australia that was looking at the U.S. market. And I was talking with him about our sector. And he mentioned, have you ever thought about listing in Australia? Because the investors here are excited about the United States with this product. And I said, no, I, not really, but I'd like to get that conversation started. And so I went over, met with a, a bank, Ordmanet, who is our banker in Australia. They took us on a roadshow. And in that roadshow, it became quite clear to me that our funding would go much better, much faster, which was important because we're scaling up in a network effects business. It was going to go much faster if we did in Australia. And that's what led to us becoming a public company in Australia. That was the first step. That's been a huge win for us. You know, I, I think being a public company is also a huge win, which I, I really love that aspect of building a company. But now the U.S., we can't go into all the details, but here's what I can say. The U.S. investor has caught up. They see what's going on here now. It's not learning it. It's seeing it. And so I think there's something to be said about like being able to you know, kind of touch, feel, see the product which is something that's missing in Australia because we're not present there. Like we're, we're listed there, but our business is focused on North America, US and Canada. So, so are you planning on becoming present in the Australian market? No, we, we really have not had any inkling of or ambition towards doing anything in Australia. Our view is that the market there is too saturated and it's not a big enough market for us to do it. It should just be too much investment and, um, too little to gain, you know? So I think our, yeah, it's unfortunate, but I think if we would look at it, the only way you could do something in Australia, in my view, is if you've got some serious partnerships with some major and major merchants, if merchants wanted to do something together, we would look at it, but you'd have to really have some serious merchant power behind you to launch a new product in that market. So Charlie, it, once your US listing goes ahead, will you delist in Australia or will you remain ju a dual listed company? No, we'll remain dual listed. You know, our, it, our investors are one of our key stakeholders. 
And the last thing we plan to do is pull stakes on people that have supported us. So we plan to stay dual listed as we go through this process. So I saw an announcement this morning, Charlie, you, you're expanding your partnership with shop.com into the Canadian market. We just talked about, of course, Australia, but what other markets have you got your eye on? So US and Canada are key markets for us. We've launched our business in India. We've also launched in the EU. There are different stages. And we just started operations in Brazil. So th- those are the three expansionary markets we're a part of right now. We're, we're always looking, but I'm not sure how many we'll be launching in the near future, you know, in terms of expansionary, because what we liked about those markets was the asymmetric rewards. It, they were very small investments for us to get founding teams started to test product market fit and they're massive markets. I mean, these are top 10 markets worldwide. And so we like where we, we are present. We like where we are, we have launched. And I think we're going to focus on those markets today. Do you have any other plans to raise capital in the near term? Um, obviously a listing, um, but do you, do you have any need or requirements? So what does your balance sheet look like at the moment? Now, if you look at our EBITDA and the burn present there and you know, take our availability on it, you know, we got around two years that we can run. So there's no needs for us to do uh, any near-term fundraising. We're going to be opportunistic about our approach towards it. You know, we want to keep on growing the business, which does require fundraising, but nothing imminent. And what, what's expected then, Charlie, for the all-important holiday period? I mean, we're weeks away. Well, you know, I, I think it's already underway. It's been spread out more than usual. I think the, the world has changed a bit because of COVID. People shop earlier. You know, if you looked at our numbers, you saw that uh, for November, November, we were 84% year on year, but Cyber Monday, Black Friday, that was 46% year on year. And so you can see what's happening there. It's just spreading out a bit in terms of how both merchants and consumers are thinking about holiday shopping. It's not as concentrated anymore. So I think that's changed a bit. Um, but from all, you know, we're probably not the best company to ask, quite frankly, because we're growing, you know, so much year over year. So it's hard to tell like what the, what's happening underlying. Um, but from our perspective, it's going great. Now, just a final question for you, Charlie. When, when we first started speaking, you were talking about, we talked about the fact that you're coming to us today from Puerto Rico. I'm obviously here down under in Australia, in beautiful Australia. Um, you were saying that the majority of your company is now working from home and you're almost completely remote. How is that working for you as a business? And do you believe this is the way of the future? Or do you think that once the situation with COVID starts to settle down, things will almost normalize back to the way they used to be? No, I think this is the way of the future for many companies. You know, our company, for sure, I think things have changed and it's working really well. You know, people are able to focus on work, um, able to connect in via Zoom or Google Meet for us in some cases. I, I just think it's the way of the future at this point. What, we, what we're doing now is we're using our office as a meeting place. You know, if you need to get together with the, the, the marketing team needs to get together, go to the office, sit together for a week, connect, you know, create some strong bonds, work out some important uh, details in, within your team. But then we're fine with you heading back home, working from home. I think it's made everyone more efficient, everyone more happy. And for us, it's working really well. I, I think it's the way of the future, but it also depends on the stage of business you're in. You know, if I was going to start a new company, I'd probably start it with people in the office because there's just so much communication you have to do very early on. But at this stage of company, I think it works really well. 
Well, congratulations, Charlie, on everything that you and your co-founder and your team have achieved. It's been really, really interesting watching the evolution of Sezzle, and I look forward to hearing more about the listing as and when we get closer to that particular point and look forward to chatting to you again. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oriel, thanks for there. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Charlie, you are with us there. Thanks, of course, to all of our listeners. Also, we'll see you with the next edition of Stock Insiders next week. I'm Oriel Morrison. This episode of the Stock Insiders podcast with me, Oriel Morrison, was sponsored by Barclay Pierce Capital, Australia's leading corporate advisory and equities trading firm. Barclay Pierce Capital provides specialised corporate advisory and equities trading services to privately owned businesses, small to medium-sized public and ASX-listed companies.